Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week marks the end of the state legislative session in Connecticut. From issues like abortion rights to children's mental health, business tax cuts and legislative pay raises, solitary confinement and transparency in tech, it's been a busy 10 weeks. This hour, we bring back an esteemed panel of experts to help us digest what happened this session and what we should expect in the November elections. Christine Stewart is editor and owner of CT News Junkie and editorial director of American Business Media. Ebong Adoma is a senior reporter covering state politics for WSHU. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton is Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Studies at Southern Connecticut State University. Christine, Ebong, and Jonathan, welcome back to Disrupted. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Christine, I want to start with you because we cannot discuss politics and changes in this country without thinking about this latest decision or alleged decision that's been leaked from the United States Supreme Court. And the fact that this brief or the the draft of that will overturn Roe v. Wade is important at the national level, but particularly given legislation here in Connecticut and Connecticut's somewhat checkered history when it comes to abortion rights and access to go from the state that was the first in the country to criminalize abortions to now this new law that would create a safe harbor for non-Connecticut residents. Walk us through the basis for this new legislation and also why it was such a contentious fight at the Capitol. Yeah, well, I think that we saw the other states moving in the opposite direction from Roe and Connecticut lawmakers, you know, um, abortion was already codified in the 1990s in Connecticut. So even if Roe had been overturned, it was still going to be legal here in, in the state of Connecticut. But they saw all these other states where the long arm of the law would have been able to reach if there was um, somebody who came from Texas to receive an abortion in Connecticut, what would have happened would be Texas would have been able to come into the state of Connecticut and hold that provider, that medical provider accountable for performing Um, the abortion. So, you know, lawmakers took swift action. And they also, in addition to that, the same piece of legislation would also expand access or the scope of practice. When they codified this, only doctors were allowed to perform abortions. And so this new legislation says APRNs, um, nurse midwives, and physician assistants can now um, help in the procedure. Jonathan, it's an interesting pattern of events happening at the national level, but also state and local, because at the same time, we're still seeing protests at the Capitol over masking, over vaccinations of people saying, I should have the right to decide what happens with my body and the choices that I make, and now juxtaposing it with this 
latest Supreme Court decision that will be issued later this year. How do you see this playing out in Connecticut now, given that the national context has changed, even if we knew it was coming, to have this as sort of a stamp? What do you think the down ticket approach of this will be? Well, I think we're going to see this already, right? It's interesting that this, you know, was leaked, the memo, the memo, excuse me, the, the actual, you know, early uh, opinion w- was leaked, at least. Um, it's the timing. And, you know, I'm often I'm stressing to students that, uh, you know, I like that legal term to define that as ripe, that between, you know, it's kind of interesting that this is the first week of May we're dealing with, and we know that somehow they had to make a final decision on everything, the Supreme Court before their term ends, which is really before July 1st. So between now and then, this is gonna be an interesting time period. Yes, nationally, and at least in what's going on in Washington at the Supreme Court, but also in the states and particularly in Connecticut, because, you know, as Christine just mentioned, you know, the state general assembly at least passed uh, what they did with the safe harbor uh, measures. So um, for me, at least, I'm more intrigued by, as you can imagine, the response from the states like Connecticut and other states will fall into to that same dynamic and then the divisions on the other side, right? Because we're seeing now the responses from the other from other states. So it, it's going to be a very interesting next, let's say, six to eight weeks, I think. I think it might even be beyond that. I think it's going to affect the midterm elections and we have uh, elections across the board in Connecticut on, on the state level. So um, it might play into that as well. So, Evang, let's talk about how it may play into these other decisions that people have to make. Abortion, reproductive rights have always been a partisan issue, have always been very divisive when it comes to those discussions. But one of the areas where we've actually seen bipartisan support related to health here in Connecticut is around issues of mental health and mental well-being. And we had the expectation before the start of the session that we could see comprehensive legislation to address mental health for adults and also for children. But when we look at what we have now, that bipartisan support has helped usher in legislation really targeting children's mental health. And that is from looking at the underlying causes of these challenges to creating school-based resources. How important do you think that this legislation that, you know, the legislature has agreed upon, how important do you think it will be for really moving the needle forward in creating a space where people can get the help that they need? Well, we hope it will be. Um, The thing is that they actually put some money behind it. Um, We've been talking about mental health issues in Connecticut uh, on a statewide basis, right from after Sandy Hook. Uh, It was a big issue then. And then with the pandemic, it's just, you know, made it that much more out there in the open. And um, so there was bipartisan support for it. The, the problem was how much money was going to be put into this. And um, they've been able to get uh, quite a bit of money uh, allocated in the budget uh, for the school-based uh, mental health uh, that, that you talked about. And also um, uh, for funding private providers, uh, more funding for private providers. So we'll see how this this works out. But uh, it seems as if there's a little bit more money uh, put behind the fact that we would like to do more about mental health. I would say that they actually, they put their money where their mouth was this time, which is really unusual for the General Assembly. So over the next 
two years, they're going to be spending $223.2 million on just children's mental health. And, and you know, some of this is changing uh, insurance policies to um, say to the insurance companies, you don't need a prior authorization before you receive inpatient mental health care. Um, this is going to impact the waiting times that we currently have in our emergency departments. This is going to, you know, hopefully decrease the the wait list that there is out there so that children can get in to see these providers. At the same time, it begins to look long term at being able to um, license more of these providers because right now we have more children who need help than we actually have the medical professionals who are capable of helping them. And I think that access to resources, access to care is so important because it's not enough to just tell people, go get help. These children, their families need to know where they can go to get timely help and timely assistance. Jonathan, let's continue this theme of health and the kinds of health issues that the legislature has tackled this year, because one of the issues that did not move forward as many expected was medically assisted suicide so that we see our neighbors in Maine and Vermont who have allowed for this. And even in Connecticut, we heard this very impassioned speech by Senator Gary Winfield. Talk to us about the opposition to this bill and do you think that this will come up again in future sessions? Oh, I think the issue will come up again. Um, you know, it's not unusual that whenever you're dealing with a federal issue like this one, that it gets delayed and then it's, it appears again, either in a special legislative session, which could happen, right, along with other issues, or it could be reintroduced again for next year's session, which we have to admit to listeners right now, we're dealing with an abbreviated session because it, it obviously ends this week as opposed to it would be a normalized session or during the budgetary year, at least, where it would take place well into June, if not July. So I wouldn't be surprised an issue like this, which is really a, a thorny one, would be taken up again or at least debated in, in the future, if not in the nearer future. Um, it's an issue that won't go away. And I think a part of it is because of the pressures that we're seeing, as you had mentioned, uh, in the tri-state area and, and certainly in other states that, are, that surround us. I see it again back to this issue of civil rights and civil liberties and how the framing of those issues are interconnected. But then we see the support and the opposition really varying across those issue spaces. So let's talk about an issue that everyone seems to have an opinion on because we're all affected by this, and that is the state budget. So Abang, Democrats have finally agreed on a new state budget. And I say Democrats because it was clear that that breakdown was along party lines. The governor has talked about having this $2 billion surplus. What do we do with that? And now it looks like there may be about $600 million in tax cuts in the next year. What are some provisions that we should be paying attention to with this new budget? Well, um, the the Democrats are pushing the fact that, you know, they have a child tax credit, um, uh, $120 million in the budget for a, cha- a child tax credit. And, and that would mean that uh, people will be seeing a check for $250 per child in the next few months. And that's that's going to make quite a bit of a difference uh, to, to a lot of families about, uh, they say about 600,000 children would be affected. So uh, there's also um, money in, in there to reduce your municipal car taxes. 
So people will be, by the 1st of July, when they get their tax bills uh, for their car taxes, um, they will see a difference there. Um, there's also um, money in there for the elimination of uh, state tax on pensions and retirement income. And of course, uh, the gasoline uh, tax holiday has been extended until the 1st of December. So there are quite a few things that uh, the average uh, resident of Connecticut will see out of this uh, budget right away. Christine, you are a small business owner. You're an entrepreneur in the state. And we often hear this debate about how we can make Connecticut more business friendly. And this budget, these tax cuts, have sort of reified some of those concerns that people have about the possibility and what it may mean for business. Are there pieces of this budget that you think the business community is paying particular attention to? Or do you support the view that these kind of cuts that help families in Connecticut will benefit everyone? So Republicans voted against this budget uh, in the House. They were disappointed that the budget didn't include more permanent income tax reductions and more permanent tax reductions. So the gas tax expires uh, on December 1st. The free bus fare expires on December 1st. And also um, the child tax credit of $250 is only for a year. And then on the business side, we have the unemployment tax. So our unemployment trust fund during the pandemic went broke. So Connecticut had to go to Washington, D.C. and borrow a bunch of money. And so there's still about a $400 million unpaid bill. And that unpaid bill, the businesses have to have to pay an assessment on that. And so they're upset that this package didn't include um, more money to help pay down that debt. And, you know, Governor Lamont would say, well, you know, the, the debt that we, we borrowed from Washington for the unemployment trust fund, that's, uh, we're borrowing that at a 1% interest. So the, the interest is, is fairly low on that. So, you know, we can afford to do that. But businesses are saying, look, you know, we were really hurt by this pandemic and we have not recovered yet. And, you know, every little bit that you could do would help us. And Republicans are also saying, look, you gave the state employees a $2 billion deal and you only cut taxes by $600 million for the rest of Connecticut residents. So the $2 billion helps 46,000 state employees, but it doesn't help, you know, the, the millions of other Connecticut residents. So that's kind of the, the two arguments there. Let me, let me also add, Clyla, if you don't mind, to, to what Christine just mentioned. You know, I'm oftentimes looking at something like a budget like this of all the facets and, and, and certainly even the nuggets and, and, you know, nuances that exist, right? Because in truth, as Bob mentioned there, about the mill rate set at 30-something, you know, as opposed to, and it's only going to affect really 75 municipalities out of 169. <laughs> so it's, it's not like it's across the board measures, right? And so, uh, and then others stress that, look, it is an election year, no doubt. And a lot of these initiatives and things are really to curry favor with the base, uh, especially of, of, you know, Democrats at least. Um, and, and not just towards the governor, but really across the board for a lot of the state lawmakers. So, you know, it, it's really particular. I mean, one thing I think you already know, and maybe many of your listeners have noticed, and I pointed this out over and over again, especially on Twitter, is the fact that, you know, this was introduced again at the last minute. I love how they just plop this at something 4 a.m. in the morning, and then it's got to be decided. I mean, this is just a particular, it drives me up the wall about how last minute 
our General Assembly isn't something like this. But then again, I shouldn't be surprised, right? Listeners shouldn't be shocked, but this is just a problematic pattern of our General Assembly. Well, well let's put it this way. Uh, politicians will not want to do something until the last minute. And if you do it at the last minute, a lot of stuff gets, gets passed in a bill that most people are not aware of. And so you can get a lot done that way that otherwise would be debated <laughs> and would probably be killed. So if you want to avoid um, having whatever measure you would like, get, uh, uh, if you, you want to avoid having it debated to death, you try and wait till the last minute and, and slip it in. And uh, it's, it's a complaint that's perennial, and I don't think it's going to be fixed anytime soon. So can I talk about one of the last minute one of the last minute surprises we've had here is that lawmakers are going to vote on a boost in their legislative pay. Um, currently, they get a, a pay base of twenty eight thousand dollars a year, which is less than minimum wage, and they want to move it close closer to forty four thousand dollars a year. And look, a lot of members are retiring, and this obviously wouldn't kick in until the new group of members are elected. But uh, I think that's sort of a surprise, even though they haven't had a pay raise in twenty years. They've been talking about this over and over and never goes anywhere. And then all of a sudden, um, they said, you know, we had a few lawmakers say that they were leaving the legislature because of pay earlier on this year, at the beginning of the session, uh, including some Republicans. So um, having it at the last minute here is probably the way to get around it without having that debate. And then they're including executive pay, right? For a lot of the officials as well for this. So, you know, I, I love our General Assembly. <laughs> I just, it boggles my mind how this happens, but it does. But let's, let's talk about the implications of this, right? Because Christine, you mentioned that the legislators will vote on whether they should receive a pay bump. You are absolutely correct. There are 31 people who are retiring from the legislature, 17 Democrats, 14 Republicans. And the question becomes, given this high number of people who are, are leaving their seats for whatever reason, whether it's because of pay or, or other opportunities or the famous phrase, you know, I'm leaving to spend more time with my family or whatever that, that sort of mantra is, is this an opportunity for the legislature to actually look different, to actually be more representative of the people in this state who say, I don't have a job where I can afford to take that time away to be a legislator and a public servant, you know, could it mean that we have more working class folks in the legislature or a more diverse legislature? Or is this really just a way to give even more benefit to people who are already connected? You know, I think that it absolutely is an opportunity to invite more people into the legislature. Um, you know, right now, you, you know, if you want to be a legislature, legislator, you have to have a job that allows you to do that. So, you know, you're taking um, time away from your regular job and your regular paycheck to go up to the Capitol and spend hours and hours and hours debating public policy. You know, this session from your house on Zoom, but in other sessions actually in Hartford. Um, and so your boss has to be um, aware of that. And, you know, if you are a stay-at-home mom or, you know, or um, a, a teacher. This isn't something that 
this would allow you to do, but maybe by increasing pay, it would allow for a more diverse legislature. And, you know, coming with that is also, you know, do we need a full-time legislature or is part-time okay? And that gets you, you know, does that get you the diversity of folks that you want making this public policy? When we return more from CT News Junkies' Christine Stewart, WSHU's Ebong Udoma, and political scientist Jonathan Warden, we'll hear why lawmakers are targeting juvenile crime and a preview of the upcoming fall election. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. All this hour, we're speaking with a panel of political insiders. They'll help us recap the recent legislative session. We're joined by editor and owner of CT News Junkie, Christine Stewart, senior political reporter for WSHU, Ebong Udoma, and associate professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University, Dr. Jonathan Wharton. After years of inaction, Connecticut lawmakers are finally working to mitigate the effects of climate change. This spring, the General Assembly passed the Connecticut Clean Air Act, and this new law hopes to support the burgeoning electric vehicle market. The law includes funding to build more EV charging stations and harder deadlines to electrify the state-run bus fleets. I asked Ebong if he thinks this bill is doing enough to really combat the crisis. I don't know about doing enough, but it, it is doing quite a bit. Um, uh, it's going to have uh, tax rebates for even e-bikes and, and as well as electric cars and trucks and, and uh, make it possible for more people to buy um, used electric vehicles. Uh, which would now bring electric vehicles to people at a lower income level. Uh, and having charging stations would also help. Uh, having the, 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 I think the biggest thing is that all school buses would, be, uh, would have to uh, be electric by 2030, 2030 deadline. And all transit buses would have to be electric. So it, it, I think it will make uh, quite a bit of an impact on, on, um, on trying to uh, clean up the environment. Jonathan, one of the other goals that the General Assembly has passed is that the state will be carbon free or have a carbon free grid by 2040. And even that decision has been criticized as being unrealistic and unattainable because of the past history in the state of failing to meet particular timelines and deadlines. Do you think that's a worthy goal that even if we don't get there, the fact that, as Ebong mentioned, we're moving toward that awareness and that action? Or do you think that we should rethink how we prioritize some of those timelines? To be all the above, we have to be realistic in realizing that, you know, <clears throat> these are just goals and they're not precise or exact. And so it's at least an attempt. And I think one thing in light of the fact that this, you know, bill at least passed the you know, General Assembly recently is that, you know, we have to look at the fact that, um, you know, uh, studies have indicated even to this day, Fairfield County, especially, is one of those areas in Connecticut that's been highlighted 
uh, by many organizations, even by governments, that it is still one of the lasting areas where it still gets some of the dirtiest and problematic air. Um, so it's not an issue that will go away anytime soon. Um, and, you know, it's a generational issue too, right? We have to consider what this means for the future and the attempts in terms of addressing this. And it can't just come from the state. It really has to be an initiative from states. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see that uh, in, in our nearby states, but also seeing the response, you know, across the board, um, you know, even from the federal government too, in, in light of this. Christine, let's talk about criminal justice now, because last year, the governor, Governor Ned Lamont, vetoed a landmark bill that would have limited the use and practice of solitary confinement in some of the state's prisons. And instead, he opted for an executive order that promoted some of those policies. But some people were surprised, given the sort of grassroots effort, the legislature agreeing on this, that the governor vetoed it. What is different in this year's bill? And do we expect that the governor will sign it into law this year? We do expect that the governor is going to sign this. This was a bill negotiated between this group called Stop Solitary CT and the commissioner of the Department of Correction. And basically what it does, it caps the number of days that a person can spend in solitary confinement at 15 days. And it limits the total number of days in isolation to 30 during a 60-day period. Um, you know, so there there was some concern uh, among uh, the Republican members that you know if if one of these inmates ends up in solitary for 15 days, comes out, stabs an inmate, goes back into solitary for another 15 days, comes out of solitary after serving you know 30 days in solitary, and stabs a correction officer that they're not going to be allowed to be put back into solitary confinement. I mean, there was a concern. Governor Lamont vetoed the bill last year because there was a concern that um, correction officers wouldn't be able to control the population. And this is one of the ways um, that they have at their disposal, one of the tools they have in order to do that. And, you know, it's a dangerous job. You look at this job and they are always outnumbered every correction officer in every facility in the state of Connecticut is always outnumbered by the number of inmates that are, are also there. So, um, but at the same time, I think that we understand the mental health toll that this takes on, on inmates um, in their inability to, to interact with people. And I think that COVID also highlighted the fact that these inmates during COVID were, were, basically being left in, in isolation and they weren't being allowed to shower. They weren't being allowed to go out um, onto the, the basketball courts and, and play around. And that really had an impact on their mental health. And so, you know, at some point, most people who go to prison are going to get out. And so what is restorative justice um, really look like? But at the same time, being able to maintain um, control over this population while they're there. Ebung, we had Barbara Fair on the show a few episodes ago, and she was talking about the last two years in the state and how it raised attention on so many issues that were interconnected and internested. And we've seen the 
the real divisive notion in terms of the approach to the police accountability bill, but also how, how cities and localities and suburbs are responding to what they perceive as an increase in juvenile crime and the need for some approach that cannot just reduce the number of, say, car thefts, but really think long-term, how do we keep people safe and how do we prioritize public safety? And so this new bill around juvenile crime will expand the ability to use GPS monitors. It will expand the amount of time that a young person can be detained before there is a detention order issued. And we've heard from Representative Robin Porter of New Haven that she's really concerned that this may actually have a detrimental impact on particular young people. And her concern is about young people of color in the state. Do you share that concern or, or should we be thinking about this more broadly, about what this means for safety in the state? The problem here is that uh, they had to come up with some type of compromise because there is a lot of uh, concern, especially in the suburbs, uh, about an increase in car thefts. And they feel violated and they feel that uh, something has to be done about this. And uh, the statistics... Uh, uh, actually don't play uh, it, it the the amount of juveniles involved in these crimes has not gone up the percentage has not gone up that much but the perception is what we're dealing with and so they put together a bipartisan juvenile crime bill and it had these provisions about more GPS monitoring and, and being able to detain a juvenile uh, from, I think it, the maximum was six. It's now been extended to eight hours to give enough time for uh, them to check up on the juvenile's background and be able to assess, uh, you know, how how to deal with each particular person. Um, but um, we, we tend to overdo these things when, when we do them. Uh, if, if you remember back in the 90s, uh, uh, um, it was uh, uh, three strikes and you're out, lock them up. And, and now we're trying to reverse all that. And then we have another bump and it seems as if crime is on the rise again and we fall right back to where we were, uh, where we were trying to lock everyone up. Um, so it's it's a very delicate balance. Um, and, you know, I think um, Representative Porter's uh, concern is, is is quite valid. and and it is it is good to have some constraints when you try to clamp down on crime. And it's and an, an try to look at it at, at, on an individual basis rather than a, a one stroke for everyone, you know. And um, I think they tried to balance this out. Um, we'll see how it works out. But uh, because of that, you know, uh, the, 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 the GPS monitoring was a big factor. And um, it stalled the bill for quite a while before they were able to get instead of having instead of having it as a, a blanket thing it would be to, at the discretion of the judicial system so the judges would be involved and uh, so that it could be dealt on, on, on an individual basis we'll see how that plays out but it, when it comes to this uh, crime is is a big issue in the upcoming um, elections and I think that's why, we have uh, it being um, such a contentious issue 
in the legislature, but they were able to get a compromise together. So it was a bipartisan bill in the long run. But at the same time, I mean, I think we recognize that, you know, when it comes to an issue like this, in terms of reform measures, like this, you know, surrounding judicial reform areas, I mean, consider what happened last year with the police reform bill, right? I mean, that was also a very kind of heavy-handed response that took, you know, a while to hammer out. And now we're recognizing, you know, a year later, hey, we need to go back and see what we can do to revise a lot of these things. I think the same thing is going to happen even with an instance like this one. Um, because too often we see measures like this as an attempt, at least a starting point. We need to go back and maybe consider, or lawmakers do, how they can go back and re- make these revisions and recognize, hey, there's got to be a better way of reauthorizing when it comes back to revisiting these concerns. So I don't think it's going to be an issue that's going to go away. It's just that one that is certainly more pronounced because it's an election year. After the break, we continue our conversation with our panelists, Christine Stewart, Ebon Udoma, and Dr. Jonathan Wharton. What should we expect from a new digital privacy law and a look at some of the most competitive state races this fall? This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Connecticut politics. The legislative session wrapped up this week. Our guests are Christine Stewart, editor and owner of CT News Junkie. Ebong Udoma is senior political reporter for WSHU. And Dr. Jonathan Warden is associate professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. The coronavirus pandemic has changed everything about our lives, including how we vote in elections. A law signed by the governor last month makes many of those COVID-era changes permanent. And these new provisions can expand absentee voting, including for out-of-town commuters and people with health concerns. In 2020, over a third of all Connecticut residents voted by absentee ballot. I asked Jonathan if these new changes could have an impact on who votes in the fall. I'm going to be paying special attention to the turnout, which, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm frequently ranting about because it's critical to see how many people will, in fact, show up, not just so much for the midterm races, but actually for the gubernatorial races. And, and I don't want to forget, certainly, the uh, constitutional statewide races and absolutely with the General Assembly races. Um, you know, you mentioned early on in the show that we're going to have a lot of vacancies now, uh, retirements, people leaving the General Assembly. And we can't forget these districts where some of them are actually swing districts in some instances. So, um, you know, this is going to be critical to see the turnout. And yes, to get to your point, in terms of pathways in light of COVID, where it would be kind of considered maybe the untraditional turnout, right? People who will at least uh, turn in their, their ballots and in all kinds of, of measures and ways. So this is gonna be an interesting test case, I think this year, uh, because arguably whether we're post COVID or not, um, is this gonna be a blueprint for the future for really the, you know, after uh, this year um, in terms of what it means for scarily, we have to think about the municipal races too down the road, because in many places you have the municipal races coming up next year too. So could this be a blueprint for what it means for the local races come next year. 
Ebung, we are seeing, you know, changes in how people can vote. We are seeing big numbers in terms of retirements. Do you expect that this may change the balance of party power in the state legislature when we look at these upcoming elections in the fall? It could, because all our statewide constitutional offices are Democrats right now. And having three vacancies for the Secretary of the State, uh, for the Treasurer's Office, and for the uh, Comptroller's Office, uh, means we're going to see new faces. Are they going to be Democrats or are they going to be Republicans? An opportunity for the Republicans. And basically, it, there are going to be a lot of issues that are going to drive people to the polls this, this uh, fall. Um, because there are quite a few contentious issues and national politics might even play a role in this. Uh, just we started off the show talking about the abortion uh, decision that might be coming down from the Supreme Court. That might be a game changer in motivating certain people who might not otherwise have turned up. And uh, the, the Republican emphasis on local races might also play a role here. Um, So it's going to be quite an interesting election coming up, and uh, there's just going to be so much uncertainty. And uh, even with the nominations, uh, the the conventions coming up uh, this weekend, where the state endorsed candidates will emerge, uh, will probably lead to uh, quite a contentious primary in August. So um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of political activity between now and November, and it's hard to tell how it will shape out in November. Christine, let's talk about that. It's exciting to us because you know we're political nerds and political junkies, and we love having something to talk about. And so Ebong mentioned everyone talks about the top of the ticket, this race for governor, but you now have these three key state offices that have opened up surprisingly in some of those cases where people didn't expect there to be a race for a primary or even to really need to consider that. And now we're talking about Comptroller, Secretary of State, and State Treasurer. I'll ask all three of you, but I want to start with you, Christine. What is the race that you are paying the closest attention to as we get closer to convention, primaries, and then election day in November? I think the state treasurer race is probably the most interesting to me. Um, It obviously was unexpected that, you know, four weeks before a convention that state treasurer Sean Wooden would announce that he's not running for a re-election, giving the Democrats very little time um, to uh, get together a group of qualified candidates, and and look, they did they did find them. Um, there are three Democrats who are vying again for for that position, like there were back in 2018. But I think that it is, uh, you know, it, it's going to be a very interesting race on the Democratic side. I don't necessarily believe that it's going to be competitive between the Democrat and the Republican at this point. So Representative Harry Aurora um, from Greenwich has announced that he is seeking the uh, Republican nomination for state treasurer. So, but I think that the Democratic convention is going to be interesting this weekend because of the state treasurer's race. Jonathan, what about you? What, what's the race that you're paying attention to? You know, I'm chopping at the bit on this already, and I, I have to admit that um, ugh, I'm so much ashamed because I was supposed to be a delegate <laughs> at the Republican convention this weekend, but obviously I'm ill right now and I can't do it. But um, look, Christine's spot on about that. I am fascinated 
by the treasurer's race. And it's not for what you think, Christine and everybody else. It's more because they're New Haveners who are kind of battling it out, right? With Eric Russell and Karen DuBois Walton, who, and I, yeah, you know, I'm close friends with Eric and my former, former neighbors. So I'm shocked that he decides to step up. And you see the divisions even among New Haven Democrats in terms of who they're supporting and who they're endorsing. And I mean, so bizarre how that has taken place so quickly just in the last couple of weeks. I don't know whether Democrats or the rest of the state are really paying attention to that. Uh, and then obviously you see what's going on for the other races. Uh, the Comptroller's race shouldn't be a shock with Sean Scanlon. And then certainly with the, the treasurer's race too. But then I don't want to forget the Republican side of it because, you know, you have multiple candidates who are running for secretary of state office. And yet it should be a little bit more consolidating taking place, at least on that side of the aisle, but it's not. And so, uh, you know, for the secretary of state, it, it's a very interesting race. You have so many candidates running on both sides. And it's just weird how this has all happened and who's going to get the endorsement and who's going to kind of squeak away, if you will, at the conventions this weekend, because that endorsement matters, right? You need to get that 15% to even appear on the primary ballot uh, later on in September so that registered voters, you know, with the political party can actually make a choice after the endorsement of the convention. So I, I don't think this is going to be an easy one um, to take place on, on some of these, ooh, I hate saying lower uh, candidacies, ballot candidacies, but you know, it's important. Yeah, at the top of the ticket, you have two very, very rich uh, men uh, who have spent, who are going to be spending a lot of money on media. So we're probably going to be inundated with their commercials going through the. I'm, I'm going to be fascinated if that will be a turnoff, <laughs> the, the amount of, of uh, ads that we're going to see at the top of the ticket for the for the governor's race, because it's already started. It, it is amazing. If you turn on the television in Connecticut, you're either seeing an ad from one of the gubernatorial candidates or a tourism ad for Florida. And so it's amazing how already in May, I'm like, this is another reason why I have to turn off the TV. Let's talk quickly about an issue that you know, I think is is very important for many people across the state, but isn't getting the same level of attention and coverage as some of the others that we've mentioned, but could really play a factor when we think about these other races in November. And that has to do with the issue of transparency in terms of how big tech companies are protecting user data and what that means for security, for privacy, what it means for the state to think about how that data can be used. There's a new bill that would give people the ability to opt out of data collection, and that has lots of implications in many areas. Christine, why do you think this issue, given the number of people that it affects, why do you think this hasn't emerged as sort of the standout issue for this legislative session? Because... We don't see it, right? We don't see it on a daily basis, or or maybe we do see it. You know, we we go and we log on to our computer and we see an ad um, for a product that we were just uh, searching for. Um, so you do and you don't see it, and you don't know how necessarily to opt out of that. Um, so companies with data on at least a hundred thousand Connecticut residents will fall under the bill's requirements. So that is going to be a, a lot of companies um, who are going to be scrutinized now and who might not have received the same level of scrutiny in in the past. And Connecticut is one of the few states that is 
moving in this direction and, you know, giving consumers a choice to opt out whether their their data is collected. And I think that this is this is a huge consumer issue um, that has kind of flown under the radar. I should also add here that uh, for those 16 and under, you have to opt in. So um, you have to actually take a proactive action to be able to, to get your, your information um, uh, stored and shared. So um, that, that's, that's kind of interesting. Jonathan, one more issue here that, you know, is important for when we think about generational differences, we think about where people live in the state, how they live in the state, and how they pursue their well-being has to do with this renewed interest in unions and of, of collective bargaining and organizing. Connecticut became just the second state in the country to outlaw what's called these captive audience meetings by employers. So it would outlaw these captive audience anti-union type of meetings. What do you think this new law will mean, not just for employees, but for business owners in Connecticut as we look to the future? Well, that's the thing. Um, you know, how advanced are sectors here in Connecticut going to be towards this? And I think that's going to be the big question mark in terms of, you know, what does this mean for um, the state's future um, when it comes to the private sector? And I, I think I think the jury will still be out in terms of the response to this. Uh, I don't think it's going to be definitive that you know, this is going to be absolute. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you're going to see some aspect of this actually revised later on down the road, which is oftentimes the case anyway, with something as, as, as you know, uncertain as this legislation. And, you know, the only other state that has uh, legislation like this is Oregon. So good point. Be interesting comparative model. <laughs> <laughs> so as we come to the close of our time together, I wanted to address an issue that I think is probably one of the most important decisions of this year that has not been covered. And, I, and I'm really disappointed in that. And that is that Connecticut now has an official state candy, right? So the lollipop invented in the early 20th century in New Haven. We have a theme here with New Haven today. Thanks to the campaign of a third grade class at Timothy Dwight School in Fairfield, we will now have an official state candy that follows on the heels of last year having an official food, which is pizza. So, Christine, as we wrap up, I have to ask you, because this is so important, we have an official food, we have an official candy. What is the official item that our state should be focusing on next year? Oh, my goodness. I do not know what they should be focusing on next year. Um, the lollipop uh, has not received final passage yet. So as we are as we are recording this. Um, so uh, and Pez did not make the cut because Pez is a brand. It is not necessarily um, something that would qualify under under state law as an uh, official candy. So uh, I know that the the girls were were up here this week um, with one of their fathers uh, making their pitch. And I just think that it's fantastic. And I encourage all educators out there to um, get their students involved and make a decision on what they want to be the official state of Connecticut something next year. But the pizza actually get moved to the General Assembly last year, though? I thought it didn't go anywhere. It, right? it failed. It actually failed. <laughs> it yeah. failed, but I'm trying to speak it into existence, Jonathan. <laughs> Last year, we focused on food. This year, we're focusing on candy. Ebong, work with me. What should be the next thing? This is critically important to the future of our state. What should be the next thing that we focus on here? 
Oh, uh, I I would uh, I would defer to the third graders. They seem to have. <laughs> <laughs> so so last year the pizza did pass the house, but it failed in the Senate. So this year the lollipop passed the house, and my guess is it could fail in the Senate. <laughs> That's where, that's where bills go to die when it comes to food, right? I got a controversial one for you all, though. How about either the cold or the hot lobster roll, right? That could be fun. <laughs> I mean, it's no question. It's a hot lobster roll. Just saying. That's that's where we go. So, <laughs> Christine Stewart is editor and owner of CT News Junkie, and she's editorial director at American Business Media. Ebong Adoma is senior reporter covering state politics for WSHU. And Jonathan Warden is associate professor of political science and Urban Studies at Southern Connecticut State University. Thanks so much for joining us on Disrupted. Thank you so much. Thank you. To find links to work from our panelists, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tolarski. And one last thing, our show isn't just on the radio. You can listen to new episodes of Disrupted and binge our previous episodes by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, thanking you for listening.